Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, where I sit down on my lunch break, and we go through a Bible verse, or three or so. Uh, we're going through the man cars one at a time. They have uh, Bible verses on them and a few questions to keep your mind moving on it, and really think about how the scripture applies to what you're doing today and tomorrow, and hopefully for the rest of your life, right? So, the goal is to become a better man, husband, and Father, by uh, just kind of looking at what the standard is in the Bible. Um, not that we would earn our salvation, obviously, but that um, because we have been saved from death by Christ, we should strive to, to please Him and follow His example as best we can. So here we go! We are in Proverbs chapter 19, and we're going to go through verses 11, 19, and then verse 3 of chapter 20. Uh, Proverbs is a book of little wisdom sayings, and they're all kind of all over the place. And so the verses are usually about three of them that all follow a common theme, and they'll be with within about the same page, depending on your edition of the Bible. So, here we go. Chapter 19 of Proverbs, verse 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 1919, a man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. And then chapter 20, verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. So, where does your mind go when you read this? And I immediately think of the last time I got angry and uh, said or did something I regret. So for me, uh, it's actually a church this last Sunday. Uh, Sunday? Sunday? Wednesday? It was Wednesday night at church. I was really frustrated at the timing of everything. We were trying to get home and get to bed, uh, get the family to bed early enough so we could have a good start to the next day. And there was always, oh, we forgot this, and there was one more thing. It was, it was one of those. Um, and... And I let slip. I got really frustrated. I haven't been this angry in a long time. And I, I punched the back of our minivan, left a couple of dents in it. And then was able to stuff it and move on with what needed to be done. And I apologized to everyone afterwards. And it was, I don't know, we used it as a teaching moment. Not perfect. And uh, life goes on. You apologize for it, you own it, and you keep going. So, that's that's what I think about when I read this kind of stuff. Um, and so between these, the obviously anger is kind of the focus of these. But, you know, it doesn't just help you to say, oh, don't be angry. Don't be angry. That's, that's no good. But if you look at it of how, how can I use this, to avoid being angry. A man of great anger will bear the penalty. For if you rescue him, you only have to do it again. So if you stay an angry person, there's going to be consequences over the long term. Um, and so in those moments of anger, thinking about, I'm going to have to deal with these consequences later. Is this actually worth it? Um, keep away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. And thinking about, you know, it's more honorable to 
just set aside this this struggle, this quarrel, this thing that seems so important to me right now, because only a foolish person is going to engage, you know, if it is something truly trivial. And uh, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and his glory to overlook a transgression. That is, it's wise. The more that you know, the more that you think about things in their true and proper perspective, uh, the more you realize that it's just not a big deal. This is written by Solomon, who also wrote Ecclesiastes, and the punchline for Ecclesiastes is, we all die at the end. Um, you know, whatever you do, it's not going to make you live longer. Um, in uh, longer than you know, hundred years, eighty years, or whatever. You don't you don't get to decide when you die, and uh, stressing out about some little thing like how quickly you get out of church or how much your kids are screaming or whatever, it's not worth it. It doesn't make any sense to be, to allow yourself to be angry about that for very long. I, you get provoked to anger, but then you need to be an adult and stop and think, hey, where is this in the grand scheme of things? Is this important? Okay, if it is, then how do we move forward from it? Um, anger is a word we get thrown, we like to throw around words that we, don't really take the effort to define. We just assume everybody knows what it means, and it's you know, it may not always be the case. Um, next question here: Define anger using only one sentence. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the one sentence definition. You don't really know what something is till you can define it in one sentence. When you can describe, this is not a run-on sentence, a single precise sentence. Uh, only then do I think can you really know. Uh, what something is, you just kind of assume that you know, and you have this vague, cloudy, blurry concept. Take the time, think about it, put it into one sentence, in your words. So, um, I usually like doing Bible verses to to get my one sentence. Is I'll uh, I'll dig up as many Bible verses as I can find that use the same concept or idea. You know, for anger, as an example, I'll dig up everywhere in the Bible. Uh, that God gets angry and look at the things that make him angry and, and what all those have in common and go, okay, well, this is good anger versus, you know, bad anger and all the times it's negative. What do those all have in common? And kind of mash that together and into one sentence. You, know, you see a lot of phrases or other auxiliary words that get repeated over and over and over again. And you go, oh, here's a biblical definition of anger. Boop. So uh, it sounds more complicated than it is. It's just a matter of hitting up the Google search list of verses about anger and then just read them and then read them all in different uh, translations and then um, really, uh, really boil it down because you don't want what you think it is. You want what the Bible says it is. Uh, and those usually are the same thing, but you can't always assume that that's accurate. All right. So for me, um, a general definition, though, is... The emotional reaction when you don't get what you want is a really broad anger. So it's, you know, it's an emotional reaction when you don't get what you want. And uh, that fits for all the times that God is angry because the Israelites are in idolatry is, uh, I think, the actually the, the only thing that it, the Bible describes God being angry over is, is idolatry. And he wants them to worship him exclusively, and then they don't. God did not get what he wanted in that instance, which was 
you know, wholehearted obedience. And then he has that emotional reaction. We are in part emotional creatures, and we also are in totality created in the image of God. So it makes sense that God has to some extent within what little we can understand emotions and uh, Jesus cries and God gets angry and both of them love and you know we, we see that it's very inherent in, in humans and how we are so the emotional reaction when you don't get what you want so so what's the biggest barrier for us for living a life where we're slow to anger where we uh, avoid getting into trouble and the penalties associated with anger, and we keep away from strife. What's what's the biggest hurdle for us to overcome? And I'd have to say it's habit. I had I had a, an anger issue for a really long time, and I've I've come a, strides, many strides farther. Uh, to the point where I wouldn't say that I really have a temper anymore, um, but you know there are days, and there'll be there'll be moments where things that I get upset about, but not not often, not much, but it happens. Um, and it, it's just it was always a matter of habit where I would find something that my my thoughts would be a certain pattern of this makes me angry, so I do this and then I do this, and it was it got very habitual where I just, you fall in a comfortable routine of this kind of event happens. This thing, um, is, is what plays out. A lot of it was rooted in being mad at myself for not being good enough. It was just hundred percent. That's what, uh, almost all of the times I got angry was, wasn't really at the moment, but at myself for not being good enough to avoid the mistake or to not have made the mistake in the first place or to leave the house on time. And, um, so, but seeing that consistency, taking some time to understand it, I was able to go, okay, these are the habits that lead up to these uh, anger outbursts, and then figuring out how to um, mitigate those steps in the path. You know, if A always leads to B, always leads to C, C being your, like, outburst where you're upset and you're yelling and tirading through the house, yelling and cussing about um, being late or not being able to find something, as I have done in the past, um, then don't sit there and try and wrestle with C all day long. Find A. Fix A first, because then C happens less often, and then your life is a little more relaxed, so you can go, okay, why am I doing this? Why can And you can work at the root problem. But A is A is the way you start. So for like, can't find your keys. Well, I I leave them in the pocket of my pants 100% of the time. So I go home, get in comfortable pants. I leave my dirty pants on the floor in the same place so that my keys never go anywhere but right there. Um, or, you know, some guys use a dish or a bowl or a drawer, but you, you do something little and simple so that having my keys in the same place every time keeps my anger in check. Now that's only superficial. You got to then spend time with the Lord in prayer and the Bible, figure out where the source of your anger is and what, what up here is causing that to happen. But 
So you're not acting like an idiot more often than you need to. You get a little band-aid over it of, well, I get ang- this is the thing that makes me nervous. I'm getting lost, losing my keys, being late. So you start doing stuff the night before. You start keeping track of your keys. You start looking at the directions before you're driving down the road. Um, and you get all of those things in line so that you spend less time in the angry tirades, but then you have to spend your free time now figuring out why the angry tirades, not just go, well, I solved it, because then the one time you lose your keys, back to square one. Square one. The problem isn't your keys. They're showing you a bigger problem. you got to deal with that. So, But that's that's the biggest barrier, though, is habits, right? Your habit is to just do whatever with your keys when you get home. Now you can't find them. Now you get angry. Okay, you start spiraling out of control and going in circles and circles and circles. It's a, it's a crazy cycle, to borrow a phrase from Emerson Egrich, Love and Respect. Awesome series. Go read it. Google Love and Respect and uh, Emerson, and you'll you'll find an awesome uh, marriage resource. And now he's got a parenting book out where he uses the same crazy cycle principle. But that's the idea, though. Um, he, he does it in the context of relationships, but it happens in your relationship with yourself and how you act in the world around you. All right. So that's all I got. Give me your uh, answers to some of these questions, ideas, thoughts, comments, and uh, come see me over on Facebook, unless you're already on Facebook, in which case, welcome. And uh, I will see you next time. Godspeed. Hey, Alfred DaCosta from the L4H podcast. Just wanted to say hello. First and foremost, sitting here with my six-year-old son, getting ready to head out, but was thinking about the toil and the work of your hands. And it made me think of creation. It also made me think of a podcast I'm doing over feminism. I have another lady giving me the answer of what the true definition of feminism is and what it is not. I went to a bachelor party, which was not a bachelor party by any means of the the regular definition, but um, it was a place where we we made a group, a gentleman group, where we want to aspire to be real men. So what does it mean to be a real man? That's something I wanted to talk about. And it's, it also comes with biblical depth with what you described. And so I thought that was pretty cool. One thing I do want to uh, ask, I'll ask on the next segment here. Hey, Alfred, this is Robert Pearson from Follow the Leader. <clears throat> it's awesome to hear from you. Uh, first, your comment on toil is a very accurate observation that it we are participating in God's creation and furthering it in our own small acts of creation, kind of mirroring his his image as we we are image bearers of the Lord. Uh, so that's accurate observation. There's a cool article I found. Um, if you Google uh, Christianity Today, the magazine, uh, just Christianity Today, blue collar theology. There's a guy that does um, he's done a, did a master's project on um, what a blue-collar theology is and and how the church is really kind of sorely lacking a proper theology of work. And uh, it's his attempt to remedy that. And it's an awesome little podcast. So there we go. That's that. I'll answer the question on the next one. So three things maybe I could mention in this short minute. But the first one is, in this group, it's not designed to counter feminism, but it is to aspire to being real men. I started a group on this platform called Habitica is what the theme of this show was starting to go towards, but I'm making it just one of many things I want to um, um, 
talk about on this show and so um but on it uh, we're this group and we just like you know like crush um goals daily through gamification but in it i i've been working at wanting to make challenges and goals along with our daily activities and accomplishments because there is that sense of of ah when we do accomplish the question though that i did have has to do with um with you know the the that women feel that that the bible is very masculine and overly masculine what what do you answer to that hey alfred so on to your question about what the was it why is the, the bible is a very masculine book it's it's not really a complaint, I guess. It's like saying the ice capades are really feminine. It's just an observation. That's not exactly a negative feature to it. Um, and I would say that if you look at Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created them male and female. In his image, he made them. God made humanity, male and female, in his image. Um, and to people just ignore that and go, oh, it's a masculine book. God describes himself with masculine pronouns, yes. Um, but lest we forget, there's an entire book where a disenfranchised woman saves the entirety of the nation of Israel in exile. There's an entire book where two disenfranchised women are uh, put into the line of Christ as they reclaim their uh, their family's property. Now, there's a lot of good women in the Bible that get overlooked. It's a little frustrating. These things are only a minute long. So I had more to say. As I got talking, I remember there's a ton of stuff in the New Testament. There's a pile of women that sponsored Jesus's ministry uh, in the New Testament. I don't have footnotes for all this. I could I could work them up for you and email them to you later. Um, the Martha of Mary and Martha. Everybody only remembers her as doing the dishes and not listening to Jesus. But she's one of the few people in the New Testament who looks Jesus in the face and says, "You are the Son of God, the promised Messiah." And she treats the resurrection of the dead, of uh, those who believe in Christ, as a matter of fact. She's like, well, yeah, of course that's going to happen. When that was a huge hot topic theological thing of the day that very few people understood, let alone had a solid opinion on. And she's like, yeah, I understand that. That's fine. Uh, and so just too often we have a very myopic view of the Bible of what we think is in there and not actually read what's really in there. <laughs>